Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their travel trailer, which they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. I've been thinking a lot about the philosophy of life and death in the animal universe this week. We've got good reason for that, but still, it's tough. But we're in the field of agriculture, and when you're surrounded by living organisms on a daily basis, that life and death issue is something that comes up more often than those who live in the urban environment might realize. Definitely more often than either rural or urban would prefer. Yes, Rick and I are definitely city people, but we have a larger exposure to the realities of life in the course of our work. Not as much as farmers and ranchers do, but still, it's there. For some people, death is just another part of life. Even if they don't enjoy that part of the lifestyle that they live, they realize that it's necessary to take a life in order to exist. But it might not necessarily tear at them like it might do to someone else. It's a practical thing. When an animal is ready to go, it's not a life-changing event, and no great emotional trauma occurs. Then there are those people that get a little more attached sometimes. An attachment can come in different forms. My dad, for example, was a physician and a surgeon, and also a hunter and a fisherman and a cattleman. So in the course of his lifetime, he probably was involved in the end-of-life decisions for more and varied organisms than most of us. He loved being around animals and plants, but he didn't attach the same emotional component to them as the rest of the family. But even my dad would get a soft look in his eye when he spoke about Chang, a big, white, mixed-breed cow horse he had for years in Idaho or Klausi, our faithful German shepherd that would patrol the neighborhood with Dad every night when they went on their evening walks. I've heard many people in agriculture talk about the difficulties of making end-of-life decisions for their animals, and it's not just their pets or working dogs and cats. Sometimes they get a little choked up when they talk about making the difficult decision to cull a good and faithful sheep, for instance, that has been just plain solid for her whole lifetime. Maybe the last birth or two was more difficult, or her teeth were starting to wear a bit more. So at some point, the decision has to be made to put her on the trailer with the others that are going to the sale barn. It's a really tough thing. You know you're sending an animal to a place from which they will not return, and it's not always an easy decision. And no matter how humane the ending, you're the one who makes that call. Many of our ranchers and farmers will admit to saying a respectful, Thank you to the beast, once they get them on the truck, that is. For me, I'm sure you know which side of the emotional scale I end up on, even with agricultural animals. It's one of the harder things I have to wrap my head around, although it's a necessary thing. If I eat meat, or wear leather, or if I have a salad, something had to die in order for me to do it. So the death needs to be recognized. We're pretty detached from that part of our production chain, and I think if it were closer to home, we might eat and waste a little less on a daily basis. But the other reason I'm dwelling on the fragility of all living things this week is a reminder that's close to home. 
Many of you know that we raise chickens here on our little farmstead in the middle of the city. And many of you know that our girls are not of the production variety. They are definitely pets. Before we got chickens, I thought the attachment part would be much easier. We'd just come off of losing three dogs to cancer in the course of four years, and we were pretty battered by it. We don't have kids, and our sleep on the sofa and go on trips with us type dogs were our family. So, after that, we thought that chickens would be a nice, emotionally distant, safe thing to have as pets, right? Well, that was not quite what happened. We got our chickens in two batches, a year apart. The first batch was ten, six for Rick and I, and four for my friend, who wanted chickens too. So I got immersed in breed research, personality tests, climate estimates, and the like, and after about 267 hours of prep, we ordered a batch of ten from MyPetChicken.com. Three of those chickens are still with us, and they're ten years old now. The next year's batch was split with my mom, who had decided that she wanted chickens as well. This time, they needed to be as friendly as possible, she said, as her grandkids were involved in the equation as well. Another 389 hours of research and prep followed, including the estimate for building a fully enclosed 20 by 12 foot coop in my mom's yard, so she could rest assured that they'd be protected and healthy and easy to maintain. We didn't do formal architectural planning, but it was close. For both batches, Rick and I volunteered to do the up-until-they-get-feathers-raising part for all the parties involved in the chicken empire. So, after more breed research, another deep dive into BackyardChickens.com, multiple backyard chicken meetups in person, and a pretty complex spreadsheet, Rick and I commenced the mission. Keep in mind that the socialization component was critical for this bunch. They needed to be easy to handle and willing to be picked up and petted by very young or old hands if possible. They needed to have good temperaments and be easy keepers. There are a few practical basics in raising chicks, and these are especially important if you don't have a mama hen to do most of the heavy lifting. Chicks have to be sheltered from predators and drafts and pretty much everything in the first few weeks of life if you want them to make it, so somewhere behind solid walls was the best option for us. Due to all the above, these little balls of fluff ended up in a huge Rubbermaid box on our bedroom floor. Those of you who have actually raised chicks know that sleep is a bit scarce with that setup, but when I'm relaxed, I still hear peeping in my head every once in a while. The brood was in the big box for a week or so, but then it was obvious we needed to upsize. So Rick built what looked very much like a paint booth on the living room floor. Not too much ventilation, just enough heat. The calculations to minimize dust but reduce fire hazard were pretty complex, let me tell you. In the interest of raising these zippy little ones to be human-oriented and easily pettable, we spent as much time as possible in that little paint booth, including sitting down amongst the bunch to pick up and feed and pet at least three times a day. There's a visual for you. I'd usually have five or six chicks on my lap, shoulders, hands, feet, and sometimes my head because those little guys are pretty curious and they do try to fly a lot at that age. For about two months, there was sawdust everywhere, no matter how much we kept up on it, peeping and begging for treats constantly, but especially when we went into the booth, periodic forays out to the backyard to acclimate to the big world, and the like. It was the most entertainment we'd had in years, and we were very popular with friends and family those days. 
Then came the day when we did the split of the poultry preschool. I had some pretty complex spreadsheets on this part too, involving breed type, personality rating, color pattern, and flock position. It worked out really well though, because the splits went beautifully and our flocks settled into their new homes with aplomb. When all was said and done, between our first batch and our second, Rick and I had 18 chickens. You might be one of those people who think that chickens are just a barnyard animal and they're all pretty much the same. Not true, I can tell you from experience. Keep in mind that in the Bowman household, we name, not number our chickens, as the saying goes, so you know they're pets and not production. But I spent a lot of time with them out there in the backyard, and I've learned that there are some pretty distinct personality types in chickens. Much of it has to do with what you might call the domestication factor. We've had all types in our Bowman flock. First, you have the wild ones. Don't get near me. The sky is falling if I think you'll be walking within 12 feet of me kind of thing. Healthcare on that type is a real issue just on the catching part, so it's like the big roadwork construction projects. Work at night, or things get ugly. And then there's the one that likes the things that you represent, like food or treats, but they don't want to be touched. Not as bad as Chicken Little, but still not easy. Sometimes they'll walk away if you try to pet them, but sometimes they run. Either way, not a lot of contact. And then there are the ones that actually like you, even if you don't have food. It might be because they think of you as an extended spa treatment, and they associate you with the removal of those last stubborn, pesky feather casings. And it might be because they just like company, but they'll usually come over and at least jump on your lap if you're sitting within reach. They'll also usually have extended conversations with you if you're within earshot. I kid you not. Go talk to my girls and you'll see who answers. But then there's the last category. The chicken that is so far past the friendly stage that she makes the dog look antisocial. There may not be many like this, but when you find one, you're hooked. They think that if you're in the yard, your sole purpose is to either pick them up or sit down so they can have lap time. Food is great too, but it's secondary to the lap sitting part. Conversations with this type of chicken happen every time you go outside, and it's a back and forth vocalization, just like people do. I've counted at least nine distinct sounds that translate beautifully into human speak. This last kind of chicken, the extremely friendly, going on emotionally soppy, conversational, attached, prefers people over poultry one. That was our flipper. She's the reason for today's podcast content. Flipper was in a category all her own. She was what's called an olive in this case, a mix of Americana and a black copper morant. She was solid black, except for the peacock green and blue shine on her feathers when she stepped into the light. She averaged about five beautiful green eggs a week, up until she was about eight years old. When she turned nine, she went down to three a week. She was super fluffy on the front and back, including a gorgeous muff and beard around her beak that she inherited from her Americana parent. Flipper was off the scale on socialization preferences, very much like a dog or a cat that has to be near you all the time. Not only that, but she was militant about being picked up. I regularly had little beak-sized bruises on my ankles because if I was in the yard, she would come over and beg to be picked up. And if I didn't do it soon enough, she would peck at my ankle until I did. I would carry her around like a football. 
and when I sat down and had her in my lap, she would regularly fluff up her feathers and go to sleep. She was such a laid-back chicken that one day she actually laid an egg in my lap. I kid you not. We lost Flipper last week to a condition called salpingitis, otherwise known as lash eggs. Basically, that's when the hen gets an infection in her oviduct and the forming eggs are affected. The hen tries to wall off the infected egg and produces something that looks like a kidney stone, but is a bit more gross than that. Sometimes it works out for a bit, but usually not. Often, by the time the symptoms appear, it's a little bit too late. In Flipper's case, a crop that wasn't emptying was the signal that something was wrong. She also had a pretty bad case of arthritis, which is something you would expect in a chicken that was almost 10 years old. It was her time, but it's still hard to adjust to, as I'm sure you can tell from listening. Our vet was very understanding and let me hold her as we put her on the metaphorical trailer to head out of our little farm. It has been over 10 years since we started our chicken adventure, and we're down to six girls now. The average age of a chicken seems to be somewhere between two and four years, so 10 years is pretty darn good. We still get a few eggs now and then, which I think is pretty amazing. But they're all still characters. Having backyard chickens has been an incredibly enjoyable foray into urban farming, and I cannot recommend it highly enough for those of you who've been thinking about it. It takes a bit of preparation before you start, especially if you want them to survive more than a year, but it's worth it. If you have kids or older adults in search of a peaceful, interactive hobby, it's worth it all the more. For this podcast, we'd like to mention a few of the companies and websites and resources that started with us on our chicken-keeping journey. We've included the links in our written intro if you'd like to find out more. My Pet Chicken is a website that you might remember from a previous podcast. That was the source not only of lots of information, but of our first batch of 10 little chicks of various breeds. They ship all over the country. The peeping little box arrived in the mail, and every one of those chicks survived. Three of them are still with us, which is pretty impressive because our girls from that batch had their 10th birthday just a few months ago. If you'd like more information on my pet chicken, just type that into your search bar. And yes, their pick-a-chicken tool will let you sort by the friendliest breeds if you want to use the Bowman breed selection criteria. The second company we want to mention today is called Carter's Hay and Grain, and it's a local one here in San Diego. Carter's has a few locations, but the lakeside one is our favorite. The lady who runs the front desk has forgotten more about keeping poultry than I will ever learn, I'm sure, and she was a fantastic source of information. We bought all of our shavings, waterers and feeders, and pest management supplies from them, among other things. It's an old-school feed store, complete with hay, chicks, feed, and just about anything you might need to grow or raise anything from hamsters to hogs. And for those of you who are raised in the city and are used to modern stores, there is a pleasant surprise. There will always be a teenager waiting to load your feed and hay into your vehicle. Old school. I love it. The last place I want to mention is BackyardChickens.com. This is a website with a community forum like no other, and that was especially true 10 years ago when we started. You can read posts relating to just about anything in the poultry universe, including how to start a chicken adventure. 
how to fix problems once they occur, or how to upsize your teeny coop into something truly majestic, and everything in between. They have searchable topical forums that are so vast that you'll lose yourself in the content, and local forums where you can meet up with people in your area to swap poultry, buy fertile eggs and young chicks, or just plain socialize with people in your area with your interests. It was on BackyardChickens.com that we found the San Diego meetup and an amazing local chicken breeder named Miriam. After a quick bargaining session and a great deal of excitement, we came home with a shoebox full of fluff, peeping madly away. Flipper was one of those little bits of life that we carried home with us. And I'm glad to say that I'll never look at the practice of agriculture the same way again. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please ask your friends to join us. Please also feel free to post any comments or questions to our social media sites. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Backyard Green Films. Thanks again for listening. We want to thank you for joining us this week. If you'd like more information about some of the businesses or forums that were mentioned in this week's episode, please visit MyPetChicken.com, Carter'sHay.com, and BackyardChickens.com. You can also find these links and more in our written intro. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week with another adventure. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2021.